Welcome to Stat, I'm telling you all. Medical true crime stories, and it gets bizarre. Karen Wickham, yeah, she used to work in ER. And now she's sharing the knowledge, so let's get involved. Hey, funny and scary at the same time. Medical mysteries, all facts, she ain't lying. <laughs> so tune in to Stat if you dare. Cause crazy things can happen anytime, anywhere. <laughs> yeah. Hello, 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 everybody out there in podcast land. Welcome to Stat, Shocking Traumas and Treatments. I am your host, Karen Wickiam, coming to you from beautiful Toronto, Ontario, Canada. I don't know if there are two words that can chill you to the bone as much as human experiments. I did an episode way back, episode two, in fact, if you want to check it out, about terrible psychiatric treatments. I decided that it was time to do a series on the history of human medical experiments. Humans used for medical experiments go back a long time. There is evidence that goes back to 1796. Before its eradication in 1979, smallpox was a deadly disease unique to humans, often referred to as the scourge of mankind. In 1796, Edward Jenner, an English doctor, noticed that dairymaids seemed to be protected against smallpox because of their contact with cowpox, a milder virus that affected cow udders. Jenner took samples of matter from the inside of a dairymaid's hand lesion and injected it into an unknowing eight-year-old boy by the name of James Phipps. In the following days, Phipps developed a fever, lost his appetite, and felt discomfort under his armpit. However, he soon recovered. Two months later, Jenner injected Phipps with a smallpox virus. While it might have killed the boy, he was unfazed. From this experiment, Jenner created the first smallpox vaccine, and the word vaccine comes from the Latin word for cow. While Jenner is credited for saving more lives than any other human being, his test on Phipps wouldn't pass modern experimental standards because the young boy did not consent to testing, nor did his parents. Fast forward to 1946. Simeon Shaw was a four-year-old boy who was diagnosed with a terrible form of bone cancer. The family was told that he had less than a year to live. His parents sought out other medical opinions and contacted the American Red Cross for help. Doctors at the University of California Hospital in San Francisco heard about Simeon and offered to treat him. The U.S. Army stepped in. Soldiers that were flying home from the Pacific region after the end of World War II even gave up their seats so that Simeon and his mother, Frida Shaw, could fly 10,000 miles to the U.S. from Australia in an army transport plane. The media was all over this feel-good story. The Shaws did not know about the agenda behind this sinister kindness. The doctors at UCSF were part of a secret military experiment to test the effects of radiation on the human body. Curing Simeon was not what the doctors had in mind. They injected this sick and dying boy with toxic radioactive substances, including plutonium. His mother thought her son was getting treatment for his cancer, and did not sign any consent for these experiments. The doctors also performed a very painful bone biopsy on Simeon's leg. Also, muscle and tissue specimens were analyzed to track the absorption of radiation from the injections. Simeon returned to Australia months later and succumbed to his untreated cancer. Simeon wasn't the only person that suffered at the hands of the mad scientists without knowledge and consent. Thousands upon thousands have died or have been permanently scarred. 
These serious breaches of medical ethics still cast a permanent shadow over the history of human experimentation. Over the past 150 years, doctors and scientists have achieved huge medical advances. Cures and treatments all around the world are due to the availability of antibiotics and other medicines, screening tests and surgeries. However, these discoveries came at a steep price. The cost? Violation of human rights. In the 21st century, North American laws try to protect people who are subjects to human experiments. There are still many problems. Thousands of people volunteer for the growing number of legally required clinical trials. Pharmaceutical companies rush to get new products to the market for financial gain and to develop new treatments, vaccinations, and techniques. Abuses and ethical lapses still occur. Government agencies can't keep up with all the studies that they are responsible to police. And laws don't always protect participants in newer areas of research, such as genetic therapies. Clearly, clinical trials are needed at a high cost. How do you determine who to test? Just because someone is willing, should they? In balancing the rights of the individual versus the advancement of science and medicine, how will we decide what is right and what is wrong? Since the 1700s, U.S. doctors experimented on the most powerless and vulnerable of people. African-American slaves, the poor, mentally ill, people confined in hospitals, prisons, and other institutions. It may seem naive of me to ask this, but I will. How did this ever happen? The Hippocratic Oath was written around 470 to 360 BC. It listed the principles to be followed by doctors, primum non secure. First of all, do no harm. For much of history, practicing medicine, good medicine, was sometimes undistinguishable from experimentation. Some doctors stepped out of line, but for the most part, doctors followed its principles. Experiments were mostly conducted for therapeutic purposes, where doctors intended for the patient to benefit. As deadly, contagious diseases began to appear, doctors began engaging in riskier experiments on healthy people in the 1700s. They often used children who had not been exposed to diseases, as was the case with smallpox in 1796. In 1908, the children at the St. Vincent's Home for Children in Philadelphia suffered unbelievably at the hands of the only people that they could trust. During that time, TB ran rampant in the cities. Three doctors introduced a TB toxin called tuberculin by injecting it into the eyes of infants injecting it into their eyes. Of about 160 healthy children under the age of eight, including 17 infants, the doctor saw nothing wrong with the experiments. In published journals, they openly discussed the children's suffering. This is how one case was described. It was a little girl by the name of Catherine. Quote, After the tuberculin was placed in her eye, the lid became swollen to large proportions and fell halfway down her cheek. This enormous lid, covering her entire eye, under which pus would gather, taxed to the utmost the skill of physicians. It seemed impossible to relieve the little one. End of quote. Also recounted by the doctors, a number of children would most likely suffer permanent eye damage. In their report, the doctors acknowledged other experiments where children had similar reactions to the eye solution. A year later, a New York City doctor wrote about conducting a similar experiment with a thousand children at Baby's Hospital. Eventually, the doctors decided against using the tuberculin test. This didn't stop further cruel experiments from happening. Back then, 
There were laws against experimentation, but many of them were not even for therapeutic purposes because they were conducted under the guise of being therapeutic because they would get greater leeway in trying new experiments. In 1865, a French physiologist, Claude Bernard, wrote that doctors had a moral obligation to experiment on humans before they adopted new treatments. Yet, he contradicted himself by affirming the Hippocratic Oath mandate to do no harm, even if the experiment might advance scientific knowledge. Bernard didn't think it was wrong to experiment on a woman who was being put to death. He placed dying people, whether from illness or punishment, into a different category. The woman who was to be put to death was forced to swallow worm larvae. After her death, they autopsied her intestines to see if they had grown. In 1803, an English physician by the name of Thomas Percival wrote a well-known book called Medical Ethics. The gist of it was that honesty was secondary to therapeutic care. Quote, Truth is suspended and even annihilated if it negatively affects the patient, his family, or even the community. End of quote. It was even endorsed by the AMA in its first code of ethics in 1847. This way of thinking carried throughout the 1800s. Sometimes doctors would offer payment when they deemed the experiment to be risky. A well-known case occurred in 1822, and it involved a French-Canadian trapper, Alex St. Martin, who was accidentally shot in the stomach. Dr. William Beaumont, a surgeon in the U.S. Army, stitched up St. Martin's wound, but it never fully closed. Stomach contents, including food, would drip out of the wound. Beaumont jumped on this man's misfortune to learn how the human body digested food. St. Martin was paid 150 a month, which is like 3200 bucks a month now. He also received food, clothing, and a place to live. Fair payment, I'd say, but how do you put a number on human suffering? So what would Beaumont do? Well, he would feed pieces of food into the hole and would remove it by string at different times to see how much it was digested. St. Martin was also subjected to fasting and a variety of different diets. His life was miserable. He was teased by the community and was taken on the road to be displayed to paying customers as an oddity. Exhibiting subjects of human experimentation was a thing then. From the late 1800s to the early 20th century, people suffering from unusual and or crippling diseases and conditions were often put on display throughout North America and Europe. People would gawk and laugh and say cruel things to these unfortunate people. Some people even cried hysterically and fainted at the sight of them. How terrible and humiliating would that be? The medical community would also show up to have a look, and many of the people that were put on display were African-American. If an African-American person was very tall or short, had vitiligo or any quote-unquote unusual physical appearances, they were often sold to traveling circuses as sideshow freaks. This makes me very angry to talk about, so I'm going to try to keep it, keep it down for the sake of podcasting. <laughs> and, and don't even get me started on, on circuses. But I digress. There was one circus man by the name of P.T. Barnum that exploited African-Americans. One of his most famous victims was a woman by the name of Joyce Heth. Heth had very wrinkled skin, no teeth or eyes, and was paralyzed in her legs and one arm. After Heth died, disturbingly, Barnum paid a New York surgeon to dissect Heth's body in public. 
1,500 twisted people paid 50 cents per person to witness this. The human race can be so horrible. It gets worse. Doctors would pay slave owners to experiment on these very vulnerable African Americans. Some doctors even bought some enslaved people who had a particular medical condition just so they could test out new cruel, dangerous, painful, and sometimes fatal experiments. James Marion Sims was a well-known surgeon from Alabama who conducted some of the worst and diabolical human experiments known. He cut open the skulls of black infants to find treatment for tetany, a condition that caused severe muscle spasms to the children on the plantation. He would use cobbler's tools to force apart skull bones, wrongly believing that shifting of the bones during childbirth caused the condition, not the obvious horrible conditions that they were forced to live in. Psycho Sims performed equally horrific experimental surgery on the enslaved women of the plantation. Many of the women who had difficult deliveries were left unable to control their bowels or bladder. Psycho Sims was looking to find a cure for a condition known as vesco-vaginal fistula. A fistula is an unusual tunneling between two organs in which one opens into another. And in the case of vesco-vaginal fistula, there is a fistula from the bladder or bowel to the vagina, meaning that urine and feces will leak into and exit the vagina. As you can imagine, this is a devastating condition. The cause is from tissue damage and injury to the vagina. So psychosims did experimental operations on these women in the 1840s. At the time, ether was available to be used as an anesthesia, but this sick sadist refused to use it. He even operated more than 30 times on one woman named Anarka. Only a monster would do that. Sims did find a cure and perfected the procedure at the torture of these women. He was even heralded the father of American gynecology. Sims received honors and statues around the world that were erected in his name. What a fucking joke. A monster deemed a hero. Surprise, surprise. Ridiculously cruel human experiments like this were often touted as heroic medicine. Only they were honoring the wrong heroes. They should have been honoring the subjects of these tortures themselves. Sickeningly, most physicians at the time did not object to experiments performed for treatment of African-American slaves. Yet they did debate about what was right or wrong for human experiments on white people. Surprisingly, in 1874, an experiment was performed on a developmentally disabled 30-year-old woman by the name of Mary Rafferty, and it was highly criticized. I say surprisingly because people with disabilities were often treated very poorly. The experiment was that doctors in an Ohio hospital tortured this woman by doing experimental scalp surgery on an area of skin that had cancer. When Dr. Roberts Bartholow realized that Rafferty was going to die, he jumped on the opportunity to conduct a series of electrode experiments on her brain. He removed a part of her skull and ran an electrical current through her exposed brain. Mary Rafferty writhed in pain and screamed for them to stop. Yes, she was awake. An autopsy after she died showed the extensive brain damage that she suffered at the hands of this bastard. Bartholo was severely reprimanded by the AMA for violating the Hippocratic Oath. Scientific experimentation was not a justification for injury. Bartholo ridiculously claimed that Rafferty had given consent. But what defines consent?
By the 1870s, there was new scientific knowledge about bacteria, drugs, and vaccines. Technologies such as x-rays and stomach tubes were then available. This just spurned the desire to experiment on human beings. With the promise of new treatments and cures, human beings were needed to test them. The doctor's role had changed from not just a practitioner, but also a scientist. The science of human experimentation. At this time, the medical hospital came about. Before the Civil War, hospitals were places for the helplessly sick and poor. After the war, they were places for medical science. Between 1873 and 1909, the number of hospitals in the U.S. grew from 178 to 4,359. More hospitals equaled more horror stories. And now I want to talk about the anti-vivisection movement. Anti-vivisection. There we go. In the 1800s, anti-vivisectionists were against performing experimental surgery on all living creatures, human and animals alike. Dr. Albert T. Leffingwell was a well-known anti-vivisectionist. He was disgusted by experiments that were being conducted by an Italian bacteriologist, Giuseppe Samarelli, for the cure of yellow fever in 1897. Yellow fever is an acute viral hemorrhagic tropical disease. It is transmitted by infected mosquitoes. It is called yellow fever because it often turns the infected person's skin yellow from jaundice. It is highly contagious with a high mortality rate. It killed many American soldiers in the Spanish War of 1898. It was also prevalent in the southern U.S., Cuba, and the Philippines. Scientists were desperate for a cure. Samarelli thought that he had found the virus that caused the disease and injected five patients in a hospital with a solution containing the inactive virus. Without consent, of course. None of them died, but they all suffered. They became violently ill with high fevers, dizziness, and vomiting. People were outraged and demand laws against human experimentation. They denounced the idea that science could be placed ahead of the needs of the patient. Researchers felt less criticism by experimenting on themselves. They obtained consent from volunteers, and they also paid some experimental subjects. Army doctor Walter Reed used all three of these strategies in the 1900s. Dr. Reed sailed to Cuba to test whether a mosquito was the carrier of yellow fever. Reed's team of doctors decided to be the first subjects of their own experiment. And of course, Reed excluded himself from this experiment. How convenient. Dr. James Carroll and Dr. Lazier were willingly bitten by affected mosquitoes. The two doctors became incredibly ill. Dr. Lazier died. Even though he died, U.S. servicemen and Spanish immigrants volunteered for the experiment. They signed a consent to treatment and were paid $100 and then another 100 if they got sick. They were provided free medical care, and a few even refused payment and volunteered in hope of finding a cure. His experiment marked an important step in protecting human subjects as they were able to identify the virus. Dr. Reed was deemed a hero. Also important was the opening of a door that healthy people could be subjected to experiments as long as they understood the dangers. Next, I want to move on to experimenting on children, prisoners, and soldiers. In 1911, Hideo Noguchi, a microbiologist at Rockefeller Institute in New York City, was trying to find a cure for syphilis. First, he experimented on animals, himself, and other physicians. 
He then enlisted 15 doctors to gather a group of 400 people to infect with syphilis without their consent, without them even knowing at all. 46 of these healthy subjects were orphans, some as young as two years old. A hundred other children and adults were patients who were already unwell in the hospital. Again, none of these subjects gave consent. How could they give consent if they didn't even know what was happening to them? The New York Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children pressed assault charges against Noguchi, but the Manhattan District Attorney's Office refused to prosecute the case. Babies and children at the NYC orphanage were the uninformed subjects for another later experiment. The experiment was to study scurvy, a disease caused by a lack of vitamin C. Researchers withheld orange juice from babies until they developed symptoms of the disease. They cured the infants and then did it again to see what would happen. Public outrage roared again. This is what the Journal of American Medicine wrote, that the scurvy test did not exploit the children, but instead it gave the orphans the opportunity to contribute, quote, a large return to the community for the care devoted to them, end of quote. So this is how it went. Children, you lose your parents, and you need care, and it costs a lot of money, you see, so we're going to put you through a horrible human experiment so that you can pay us back. Yeah, the bastards. Although apparently some of the infants did not completely recover, the harm to the children was viewed as minimal, and the trade-off was thought to be acceptable. Isn't that nice of them? Other groups that were targeted were prisoners and those serving in the military. In 1915, researchers wanted to study the effects of pellagra on prisoners in a Mississippi prison. Pellagra is a serious condition brought on by a severe lack of vitamin B3, also known as niacin, in the diet. The governor said that he would set anyone free who volunteered and completed the study. They would also get free health care throughout the experiment. The prisoners were fed a six-month diet of corn syrup, biscuits, pork, and cornbread to induce the condition. Anti-vivisectionists were disgusted. The next group are soldiers. Medical experimentation on soldiers usually required voluntary consent. But during World War I, U.S. soldiers were told that they would face serious punishment of serious military crimes if they didn't agree to a typhoid experiment in which their gallbladders were to be removed. They complied. What choice did they have? Before World War II, there was an outbreak of childhood diseases such as polio and measles. Doctors were desperate to find a cure. The vaccination was tested on orphans. Children with families were also tested. The parents were asked to give consent for their children. But can you give consent to put your child in harm's way? Is there an acceptable age? That's abuse in my humble opinion. And this is part of the reason why I go crazy about anti-vaxxers. Innocent children were volunteered and harmed for the greater good. And parents are so easily influenced to not getting their children vaccinated and putting present-day babies, children, and the very sick at risk. Just ask If you don't think that I'm outraged, just ask an elderly person who's been through all of this crap. Ask them what they feel about vaccines. I'm sure they'll let you know how they feel. In the 1930s, pathologist John A. Colmer tested the live polio virus on animals, then on himself and his two children. 23 other children also received the virus with the consent of their parents. 
Eventually, 300 more children were vaccinated. Nine of them died. So are they abusers or heroes? Most people are genuinely outraged when doctors overstep the boundaries of human experimentation. Serious abuses occurred. But the many new treatments and cures sparked confidence in doctors, medicine, and science. The medical profession was held in high esteem, and experimenting doctors were seen as heroes. Doctors had resisted attempts to enact laws restricting experimentation. They wanted to cover their own asses. They feared formal laws would stop the advancement of medical science and treatments. The doctors were also worried that the restrictions might expose them to legal action. They thought they could regulate the ethics of experimentation themselves. How terrifying is that? But so much of this went out the door during World War II. And this is where I'm going to stop. Because the next episode will talk about the atrocities of Nazi Germany and other wartime evil. Over the time of doing this podcast, and I'm going on almost two years now, can you believe it? I've thought about touching on the atrocities of Nazi Germany and their horrific things done to the Jewish people. And it's been covered so many times. And I didn't want to be the person to cover it to exploit any of the horrors. But sometimes things in history tend to go unremembered. And I think that it's important to bring forward the horrific things that happened so that no one forgets about it. And I think I can cover this in the most respectful way possible. So that being said, that is what the next episode will be about. So stay tuned. I want to give a big thank you to James R. Smith for the wonderful review. Thank you for taking the time. And if any of you who haven't had a chance and you like the show, maybe you could stop by to iTunes and give me a review. It helps to get the podcast out there and helps me understand what, uh, what you think. And I want to put out a big thank you to all my Patreon supporters. Uh, feel free to check out that page as well and see what's going on there and see what extra perks you might like to get if you'd like to contribute. And it's all very much appreciated. And to everyone who listens and goes on the Facebook page and Twitter and all those fun social media places. So bye for now. Take care of yourselves. Take care of one another. Love each other. And most importantly, love yourself. Peace. One love. True crime and it gets none realer. Sometimes it'll be the cure that'll kill you. Gotta watch out, yeah, you gotta watch your back. Cause you don't wanna be another episode on stat. Thank you for tuning in, learn a thing or two. These medical mysteries can be unbelievable, yeah. Subscribe, make sure you do that so you'll be tuned in and be ready for the next show. Stat. <laughs>